Listener Production. This is Real Crime Australian Detectives. I'm investigative journalist Adam Shand, and these are the stories of the men and women who work the iconic cases of our times. Successful detectives invest themselves in their work. This is especially true of undercover operatives who go into the belly of the underworld to find the truth. This requires an officer to redefine themselves. Sometimes they risk losing a piece of their identity permanently. Steve Taylor, not his real name, has lived that life. Thrown into the deep end by his bosses in Western Australia, he dealt with the paranoia of crooks and the toxic politics of his superiors. To this day, he fears retribution for what he did decades ago. He tells his story for the first time. Steve Taylor, welcome to Real Crime Australian Detectives. When I look at your picture from today, long beard, plenty attached, look like a biker. You look like you're still almost in that undercover identity that you were engaged with years ago. Is that a fair thing? Well, the main reason that I look like I do, uh, which has taken place over the few years since I've been out of the job, is because when you're heavily tattooed like I am, people tend to keep away from you. So I, I don't solicit friends. I try to keep people away from me because I am a bit like that these days. I'm not interested in too many friends. You're kind of hypervigilant still. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Everywhere I go, I always check out the cars. If I go into a room or a hotel somewhere, uh, I constantly look around to make sure that there's people there that I... Uh, don't recognise. I can't recognise anybody that's at a bar or something like that because I'll just move straight on, basically. Because when you go back to your policing career, that three years in particular from 77 to 79, 80, you caused quite a number of people to go to jail. And you wonder out there if there are still people who, if they did recognise you, might not be too happy with you. Yeah, that's for sure. I put some away for, you know, over 10 years. I know it was a fair while ago, but uh, I know I wouldn't be too pleased. (laughs) No, that's right. How do you reflect? I mean, you've had some issues that come directly out of your policing career, some PTSD, other things like that. But how do you reflect on your service overall? Would you do things differently? No, not at all. It was uh, very much an adrenaline rush. I love the job. Unfortunately, the the job didn't love me back. I uh, very much enjoyed the company of a lot of the policemen that I worked with, police people that I worked with, and uh, it was very enjoyable in the bush because I come from the bush. The drug squad was a huge adrenaline rush, and that was hard to shake, that adrenaline. I bet it was. How did you get into the force? Uh, well, I followed my brother in. He was uh, always keen on the job, and we well, both were as children. And one day he told me that he had applied, and when he got in, he went into traffic and was riding around on the motorbikes, and he suggested to me that it was a really good job. And I'd just finished my trade, was really looking around for something else to do because I wasn't too keen on getting my hands that dirty. And 
I applied for and was successful. And you came from an unconventional family life. Your mother took off when you were a, a young kid. Your dad raised you. In fact, it could be said that you learnt a lot of what you learnt on the streets. Yes, that's true. A lot of the young fellas that I was hanging around with in the suburbs that I lived in during my early years turned out to be crims and drug addicts and things like that. I was fortunate where I never got sucked into doing anything like that, but a lot of those guys went to jail for breaking enters and heroin use and things like that. And as I say, I was more or less excluded from most of that. And you learnt to look after yourself, to resolve matters in your own way rather than look for anybody else to help you. Yes, that's correct, yeah. If I was put in an awkward position, I'd have to sort it out. So it was a bit like thinking on your feet very quickly. Plenty of fighting. Yeah, plenty of fighting. Yeah, definitely. Um, The guys that I hung around with loved to fight back in those days. And you also had a pretty high opinion of, of your own capabilities. You're pretty confident about that. Yeah, I, I, I didn't mind a fight, you know, not willing to back down. I think the biggest thing was I wouldn't back down and I'd use whatever necessary to win. By means fair or foul. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So you get into West Australia Police and you're in general duties in uniform, but you don't stay there very long because you had some qualities that, you first put into practice, you're a bit of a freelancer, you, you're able to work your way through difficult situations. How did that unfold? I still had a lot of mates that were moving around in circles that were a bit suspect. I used to still hang around with most of them, although I, I lost a few mates when I went into the job because they didn't trust me. But there was one guy who uh, was very close to me and he told me of a heroin deal which was going down And for that reason, he was a pot smoker, but he didn't like the opiates, the heroines and things like that, you know. So he uh, said that uh, he would set me up to meet this guy and buy some heroin. So I arranged it with the drug squad and we did an operation just off the cuff. And it was successful? Yes, it was. So the drug squad saw you being pretty handy, lateral thinker, think on your feet. And they saw an opportunity. What did they offer you? They offered me a position as undercover in the drug squad. I didn't really know what undercover activities involved in in those days. I had watched the movie Serpico, but uh, I didn't really know what was going on until I went in for an interview. And that was when it was laid out before me. And I was quite excited about uh, going in. I had the promise of rapid promotion and picking anywhere I wanted to go in the force after my time was ended undercover. And how did they prepare you, Steve? Uh, Well, it was like a DIY kind of situation. There was no preparation whatsoever. I was just told to get a bit more scruffier and that was it. Go out into the hotels, nightclubs, bars, Anywhere where you could find people smoking dope, cosy up to them and uh, try to score some and go from there. So cannabis was one of the main main targets at the time? Yes, cannabis was the most prevalent. Uh, hash blocks were around and Buddha sticks were quite popular. I mean, you've never been undercover before. You've seen the, the 1973 film Serpico. But, I mean, as it unfolded, very different to what Serpico was doing and even how you were equipped and what your 
connection back to the force would be if things went wrong? Yeah, there was no connection whatsoever. We had, uh, I never carried any identification, unlike Serpico, who when things got hot, he pulled out his badge and a gun and arrested people. I actually never arrested anybody in the whole time that I was there. I never carried any form of identification whatsoever, not even a driver's license or anything which would indicate who I was. My car had a constant replaced number plates from all the other states so that people would think that I was from Victoria or Queensland, depending on what I was doing at the time. And uh, I only had small contact with my boss when I was planning an operation or they wanted to talk to me about some kind of event or activities they wanted me to be involved in. And you created an alter ego, Steve Taylor. How did you build that story and what backstops did you have? So I used to get about a bit taking photos of surfing championships. That was the guys that I was using. So if I wasn't around for a while, people would understand that I was out of state doing photography. So I'd cruise in and out of areas that I was working on trying to get people to like me and to get information and start to associate and people see my face around nightclubs and bars and all that. And I became quite friendly with a a fair few people in hotels and bars. And you also used, as many people do, making friends with women in these networks. Not not that you were sleeping with them and so on and so forth, but you were, you saw that as a way to ingratiate yourself and get information about these networks that you were trying to penetrate. Exactly. A lot of the drug dealers had a fair few women hanging around with them. So if, you know, I was watching what was going on, I could cosy up to somebody and buy them a drink and have a bit of a chat. And it was also a method of them protecting you once you got to know them uh, over a few weeks or a few months, uh, if somebody accused me of being an undercover cop, because narcs was the word that they often used, they would jump to your defence basically and because you'd been spending time with them, there's no way that they would ever believe that you were uh, undercover. Mm, very useful indeed. So at this stage, you're 24, you've got a wife, you've got another life completely. How do you reconcile the two? How much did you tell your, your then wife? I told uh, nothing. Nothing to my wife, nothing to my family. It was very much, uh, as you're well aware, uh, a lie, lie situation to everybody. I'd lie to my bosses, I'd lie to my wife, lie to the people I was dealing with. And uh, unfortunately, if you're dealing with several people at one time, you have to remember the lies from all the operations that you were doing. Were you a good liar? Apparently. <laughs> Did you lose yourself a little bit of this in this identity? That's a common problem that people become so deep in their identities and so committed that they start to lose themselves. Did you see that as a danger? Absolutely. Yeah. I started to quite like some of the people I was dealing with. I certainly liked going to work. And as I say, the people that I was working on, you know, it, it's awful to say, but they became friends, you know. But I knew the end result was they needed to be arrested and the drugs that they were moving needed to go, you know, to be taken off the streets because some of the people were cutting it, the powder with Ajax and things like that. You know, people were getting really sick. 
But there were times when you started to think, well, hang on, particularly when it comes to marijuana, that is this really a crime? Is this a victimless crime? Did you start to question the sense of mission there? No, not at all. It was uh, as long as it was against the law, I didn't have any opinions on whether it was a victimless crime or uh, whether it was addictive or non-addictive or, or whatever. It didn't matter. It was against the law and I was there to remove it off the streets and remove the people off the streets, so that's what I did. And you had a specific role there because, I mean, you would have some informers and or people that were considered vulnerable. What was your role with them? You were tasked by the drug squad to create relationships. How did that go? Um, on the occasions when I was introduced to people, Vulnerable, I don't think, is the right word. I'm sorry. Susceptible, maybe. <laughs> well, if they put themselves in a the position where they need a discount on their charges, they were uh, already people who like to manipulate the system and take advantage of the system in order to catch somebody else. So they had very few scruples. If I got introduced to somebody like that and they didn't know who I was, uh, they didn't know whether I was an undercover cop or I was just a, another dealer getting discount, you know, like uh, getting a lower charge because I've been introduced to do something for the drug squad. I'd have to make it quite clear to them that if they gave me up to their supplier, I would actually cause them a lot more physical pain than I, than I would get. Because you had one piece of advice from the bosses about these relationships and dealing with these rats and mice of the criminal world. What was that piece of advice they gave you? Yeah, the only piece of advice was that I was the boss. I made all the decisions. I told them what to do, where to go and how to do it. And you would punish them accordingly if they let you down? If letting me down was identifying me to the dealer, they would get punished. Did you have to do that ever? I had to put some people in their place when I first met them because they thought that they were going to arrange the operation not the way that I wanted it done. So I'd had to give a, a few people some behavioural lessons, so to speak. Euphemism there? Bit of a crack over the head, bit of a push around, and if needed, a handgun in the face. Yeah, because you carried a couple of guns. Tell me how you, how you arranged yourself with, with regards to firearms. Uh, with regards to the firearms, I carried actually the police issue was a thirty eight, which I carried in a green holster, and I was given a second hand gun, which was a thirty two automatic, which I carried on an ankle holster, and I carried a, uh, a folding knife, which was sharpened particularly to a point in order to slash tyres of the offenders in case they tried to get away uh, and break tail lights so at night time it was easier to follow the car. The handguns in particular were of interest. Uh, one night I was dealing with a bloke and he had a gun and uh, he suspected I had a gun. So, we, you know, I'll show you mine if you show me yours situation. I pulled my thirty two out from my ankle popped the bullets out and slid it across the table. He slid across his old thirty-eight rusty thing and he was very impressed with my gun, especially when he read on it was uh, property of WA Police, which I had to think quickly saying that. He said, oh, how's this? Why is this on here? I said, oh, I was a gun stolen from a police station down south and uh, 
I managed to get a hold of one of them. I said, if you want one, I'll go and get you one too. And he said, no, no, he's happy with this. You've got to be quick thinking. You're dealing with some of the most paranoid people on the planet. They think everyone's a narc, everyone's an undercover cop. And I guess because there are some undercover cops that are in, in this space, how did you address that issue of dealing with the paranoia, being convincing, and I guess, as you say, thinking on your feet when things happened? I think probably... Acting natural is the way to go, not acting like you've got a blue light flashing over your your head. Dropping the police jargon was very difficult because I'd been a policeman for a few years, so I still used the jargon. But uh, once I managed to get rid of that and talk to people at their same level that they were talking to me, everything was pretty right. A couple of people that I met were very sus, I was told that they were undercover officers from another agency. So in order to ingratiate themselves with the people that I was working on, they told them that I was an art. It created a, a very bad position for me when I went there one day and there was like a room full of people that were preparing a needle. I was more or less obliged to take the needle to save getting perhaps bashed and killed because these people were involved in a serious assault on police. And so you took this heroin. I guess it was a sort of a truth serum. If you're, if you're going to give up who you were, you see, you had to go through with this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got very sick from it, like nausea, sort of went to sleep. And uh, again, because I was friendly to the prostitutes that were hanging around there, um, a couple of them were horrified about what these blokes were doing and took care of me until I was okay, sort of like about 10 hours later. And it wasn't the, the last time that you were forced to have heroin, it happened another time. Yes, that's correct. These same people, should have learnt my lesson the first time, I went to their place, uh, it was all in darkness, the door was ajar, as I walked in, calling out their names, um, I prearranged the meeting. I was pulled to the ground and uh, had the back of my shirt pulled over my face so I couldn't see who who the people were. I did grab one by the face, but he had like a balaclava on. Two guys held my arms. One guy put a shotgun at my mouth and started to try to get me to admit that I was an arc and you never admit to anything at all because it removes the element of doubt. So I wouldn't say anything. I just kept shaking my head from side to side and uh, as a consequence, they more or less gave up and before they left, they stuck a needle in my arm and injected me again. I don't remember much after that except waking up again, but on a lounge chair with the uh, target's prostitute girlfriend looking after me again. People would say, oh, there's terrible experiences in this and there's danger, but at the same time, you're having a really good time. Yeah, absolutely. What was a typical week for you? Oh, a typical week was probably uh, if I was home, not at the... Uh, one of the other dogs, Flats, get up about 10 o'clock and get in the car, go to Perth, go to a snooker parlour or a pool room that used to be downstairs, a couple of them in Perth, play pool, 
with other guys who weren't working, who were, uh, well, they weren't bums because you needed money to play and uh, they used to gamble a bit. Go and have lunch somewhere with some people that were involved in the drug scene then make arrangements to go to a nightclub at night, meet people at nightclubs and bars and uh, depending on what instructions I'd had, uh, that's basically what I was doing, partying all the time. And you would have kept doing this, but things began to change in your second and third years. The drug squad, who had been so happy with your work, was now starting to maybe go a little bit too far with you. Yes. Well, even though it sounds like I was an impressionable person, but when the senior officer in the drug squad says to me that the hierarchy refused to give money to the drug squad to pay for informants, to pay them for any information that they got that led to an arrest. So they asked me to sell drugs, which I did. What did you do? I sold one bag to a guy and then I gave the money to the office and then a couple of weeks later I got some money stuck in my pocket when I went in there and I asked what this was for and they said, oh, it's just, uh, just something for you. And I twigged what it was that it was part of the money that I'd got from the deal. So I threw it on the desk and left it there. The next time I was approached to do it, because I was so far undercover I could have got away with anything, I was told even that if I needed to shoot somebody and kill them, they would look after the paperwork and I'd be all right. And given that, I refused to sell any more drugs. I was then labelled as a person that couldn't be trusted and my life started to become difficult to the point whereby I had a big operation uh, which I'd sourced myself without being introduced and uh, during that operation five people turned up to uh, sell me their hash oil but the department as it was wouldn't give me any real money or funny money and it was usual practice to show these people the real money before you saw the drugs. And I had to bluff my way through telling them that uh, if they didn't show me the drugs straight away, I would piss off somewhere else and I had the money so I could go and buy it somewhere else. Anyway, they showed me the drugs and I said the code and uh, all hell broke loose and police came from everywhere and I ran away with a couple of cops chasing me. But while I held these guys uh, guys and girls prisoners, a so-called new detective identified me as being an undercover policeman. So consequently, when it went to court, these guys were all saying that I uh, provoked them into selling the drugs by saying that I was going to burn their nightclub down and when the people come running out, I was going to shoot them, and that forced them to deal with me, which was a complete lie. And that was the end of Undercover. All happened at once. <laughs> yeah, that was it. So what happened to you next? Well, I was transferred to Port Hedland, shaved my beard off, cut my hair, get my nice uniform on and roam around the streets of Hedland, which was great but entirely different, a complete culture shock from uh, when I worked in Sydney and undercover and, and when I worked in Perth undercover. It was just arresting drunks and fights and serving documents, pretty good on my paperwork, 
So I started doing all the dead bodies up there, which was pretty challenging because some of them were kids. Right. Then you get transferred to Marble Bar. Yeah, I worked in Marble Bar for a couple of years, relieved as officer in charge there. And there I got some very gruesome deaths. One person blew his brains out with a three oh three. And when I went to find him, because nobody had seen him for a while, which is usually the case, couldn't get into his shack in the middle of the bush, went around the back with a police aide who's a very close friend of mine, and we pushed through the back door through the water that was on the ground, and when we got inside, we, we realised that the water wasn't water, it was his body juices, and there was all brain matter and, and skull matter and all that up the walls and down the sides, and there's maggots as big as your thumb. Again, it was uh, very, smelled very bad. Had to get rid of my uniform once I'd shoveled the body into a bag. And this is one of these moments that comes back to you still. It still does, yeah. I have nightmares over that. And there were several of them up there. Another one I was uh, told it was a shooting, a fatal shooting, northwest of Marble Bar. I had to go and pick up a tracker from one of the cattle stations and he led me to a creek on the opposite side of the creek was a was a dead body. He refused to look at it and took off back into the bush. So about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, I used torches and the headlights so I had to wade through the creek, scare the wild dogs off that had been trying to look like that they were at his head. So I fired a couple of shots in the ground just in case they were around because I didn't know whether it was a murder, suicide or accidental. So there could have been a murderer hanging around as far as I was aware. I got across the creek and I could see that there was no other human footprints around this person. I could see the position of the rifle and he had actually sat down and had a cigarette and shot himself. So I had no way of getting him back to any civilization. so I had to lift him up over my shoulder and carry him through the creek to the back of the police car, put him in through the back doors, put the rifle in there with him, and uh, off I went. There was no radio communication there whatsoever due to the remoteness. But I must say I was shitting myself <laughs> because <laughs> pop the cage light on and look in through the window, make sure he's still laying down because if he sat up, I would have jumped out the window. <laughs> so you've gone from deep cover to the arse end of the world. Yeah, basically, yeah. And a lot of people struggle with that transition out of undercover. You did as well. Funnily enough, it wasn't the horrific scene in the outback. It was being back in the office pushing paper where your crisis really happened. That's correct, yeah, yeah. So there's no debrief when you come out in those days. There's nothing, nobody to talk to. The basic concept back then was if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. So I was basically just ignored, never to be seen again, basically. Like they said to me, if there's a Royal Commission, uh, these are the ex-drug squad guys were saying to me, if there's a Royal Commission, they're going to put me on a slow boat to China because nobody wanted to talk to me. So when I went back to Perth, of course, I was back shifting papers backwards and forwards. And there'd been no promotions, no career advancement. Did you feel like you'd been used a little bit? Absolutely, yes. Uh, no promotions whatsoever, totally used, ignored, and nothing that I was told or prepared for 
came my way. Listen, there came a, a climactic scene where you were, you had an exchange with a female superior officer. How did that happen? Yeah, I was actually uh, sitting in an office by myself in tears, you know, with your depression, you know, thinking about the past. And I was actually very anxious as well because I was worried about the future, my future. And um, I was just sitting there in tears and she walked in and, and sort of snapped at me and said, you know, get back to it basically. And I jumped up and I told her that, if she didn't get out of the room, I was going to strangle her and throw her out the window. And uh, unfortunately for her, we were on the fourth floor, so that wouldn't have been a pretty sight. And uh, all of a sudden I was grabbed by two sergeants and taken down to the medical officer. The medical officer sent me straight to a psychiatrist, and after a couple of visits to the psychiatrist, I ended up in a psychiatric hospital. And how were you feeling about all that? Uh, well, I was desperate. I was ready to, to take my own life. Did you try? I did, insofar as that uh, I attempted suicide a couple of times because I continued to be ignored by the police department. I attempted to take my life in 2017 again, put in the care of psychiatrists. The police department has paid for nothing, never looked after me at all in any way, and now the psychiatrists here, don't see me anymore either. And I've been labelled by the police minister as a credible risk. In what way? That I'd either harm them or harm myself. (laughs) So I was ejected out of Parliament House by police because I wanted to speak to the police minister and I was banned from the police union officers who actually said that they called the police on me. And I said, you are the fucking police, what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, it's obvious the question here is that you've put yourself on the line in harm's way for the state of Western Australia and this is how you get treated. Is that how it feels? Exactly. Totally ignored, referred to as a loony. Uh, In fact, I used to sneak out once in a while from the psychiatric hospital to go down to one of the pubs in Fremantle and have a beer and I was walking back along the along South Street there and a police car pulled up and the guy opened the window and he said, hey, Steve. I said, yeah. I said, how are you going, guys? They said, good, good, get in. So I got in and they said, we'll give you a lift back to the hospital. I said, oh, yeah, okay. So one of the guys then got on the radio and said to VKI, uh, we've got the mental absconder, we're taking him back to the hospital. And I said, who's the mental absconder? And they said, well, you, you dickhead. <laughs> Oh, and I said, well, that's a good career move, wasn't it? <laughs> I guess the, the threat to the mental health here is about what you have to do to catch the crooks. What method were you expected to use to do the drug squad's bidding? I was expected to do anything to get a result. Like a speeding policeman must speed to catch a speeder because it doesn't work if the speeder's doing 70 miles an hour and you're doing 50. So you have to do 90. So I needed to go 100 miles an hour basically to get these baddies. And if it involved me giving tidbits of hash sticks, uh, not hash sticks, uh, Buddha sticks, uh, to ingratiate the friendship, then I'd do that. 
I was involved in a job in New South Wales where myself and another guy gave 300 pounds of cannabis to some people that were going to sell us 20 kilos of heroin. So if you're not prepared to go a little bit further, then you wouldn't catch anybody. Yeah. So how do you reflect on your service now? I hate the department, but I like the policeman, if you get what I mean. Like uh, people always use that term they, you know, they do this and they do that. Well, they are actually people in the department. You know, the whole conglomeration of the department consists of people. So they who make the rules, they who make the regulations are actual people that sign off on these things. And it seems to be, to me, that once they obtain a commission and get up a little bit higher, it's more of a political posting than an actual policing posting because they exclude themselves from doing actual street policing. Hmm. Okay. I'm sure that there are young people who are thinking about a career in policing and they look at undercover work, it's sexy, it's dangerous, they, they make TV shows about it. What would you say to a young person who's considering this kind of career in policing? Gee, that's a hard one. I am aware that there's very strict controls these days on what they do and how far they can go. There's very much support before and after and I know during an operation there's lots of communications and there's controllers and all that and you've got mobile phones, they've got I would assume radios in the car because I introduced that. When I was there, of course, there was no mobile phones. I had to run like hell, which I didn't do. (laughs) Uh, I'd uh, either fight my way out and then get to a phone box, would you believe, and try to ring my boss and hope that he was at home and say, come and help me, but it never happened. I just had to sort it out myself. I mean, the job has changed and there's more training and there's more backup and technology. But I think one thing is still the same in undercover work. You have to invest yourself in the role. This is not something you can do lightly. Dead right, yeah. If you skirt the edges and don't live the life, you won't get anything because you can't pretend to be a drug dealer and get people to sell drugs or a drug user. You can't not smoke dope in a group of people that are all smoking dope. It's bullshit. It's a lie. They say to make a pretense. It's just rubbish. You can't do it. And any undercover cop that is worth his salt has smoked dope. And I never smoked cigarettes, let alone dope, before I got in the police force, before I got undercover. That was the only time I learned how to roll one and how to mix with the people which became very easy, as I said before, because I liked the people. I liked that crowd that hang around those bars and pubs and, and it was me when I was 17 and 18, you know. So despite the cost that it's been to you, you do it all again? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> You're a typical copper. <laughs> you got a book. This is fantastic. What's it called? Underdog. And when will it be out? I'm hoping this September. It's all about my time in the drug squad. It's a little bit more than what we discussed. Probably uh, a lot more about uh, Marble Bar and Port Hedland and how I came to lose it. 
Steve Taylor, thank you for coming on Australian Detectives on Real Crime. You, you have loyalty, you have duty, and we really thank you for your service. Oh, thanks very much, Adam. I appreciate it. If you'd like to hear more of my work, go to Real Crime Features, Real Crime Interviews, and State Crime Command Investigations. Thanks for listening. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Mixing, editing, and theme music by Matt Nikolic. Associate producer, Matt Dwyer. Research by Nolly Wei Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.